Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are going to be uh, beginning the, the, as always this year, the third section of this parsha, parsha beha'alotcha. Uh, and Parshat Be'alotcha has a lot going on in it, like a ton going on in it. Um, we have uh, the instructions. We have the uh, instructions about menorah. So there's a lot of stuff, a lot of commentary written about menorah. We have um, stuff with Miriam. We have all kinds of stuff going on. We're going to look at an interesting text today. It's, it's an interesting scene in Torah, uh, and there's. And lots written about this particular scene because it is a doublet. So this incident that we get now is a doublet with an incident we get somewhere else in Torah with a very similar um, storyline. Uh, and so, uh, so people want to look at both of those stories and say, why is it so different? And we'll get into what that means. What does it mean by different? What seems to be the challenge? All right. So I need to share my screen. Be patient with me. It's been a long time. How do I do that again? Oh yeah. Okay, share screen. Dun, 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 dun. Okay. Yay. Alright. So the first thing I want you to do is look on the top right hand corner of the Hebrew. It, you can have a printed volume as well. Look at the, the top right corner. Before the Hebrew starts, right before the word vayihi, you'll see a backwards nun. And then if you look after the word Yisrael in verse 23, you don't have to read Hebrew to know this. Look after the colon on that second line of Hebrew, and you'll see that same backwards nun, that same character down there. So it looks kind of like brackets. Let me see if I can use my cursor to show you. All right, here's my cursor, those of you at home. Here's one at the beginning, right? And then if you come down and follow the cursor with your eyes, you'll see the second nun here. So these are called simanim. They are called signs. So these are not supposed to be the letter nun. There's argument in the tradition about whether or not it the, the fact that it's a nun is meaningful. Most scholars agree it is not meaningful that it is the letter nun. In some traditions, this was dotted. So instead of nuns, you would have dots to set this text apart. So some people think that a dot, which is a nekuda, that maybe the nun is from nikud, nekuda, meaning dots, so that it was originally indicated by dots, so they used the, the letter nun to indicate nekudot, dots, okay? Um, we don't know. What we know is that this is a scribal tradition that has been preserved in every Sefer Torah that is written to this day. So these nuns appear at the beginning of verse 22 and the end of verse 23 in every single Sefer Torah we have and in every printed edition of Torah. So the scribal tradition is preserved. Now you're going to ask, hopefully, what is that scribal tradition, Rabbi? 
what what is the tradition? Why is this text uh, indicated with these nuns? Um, so before we even get to the text, I'll tell you that um, some people want to say that this text doesn't belong here. This text was supposed to be somewhere else. It's here. It doesn't make sense that it's here. And so these brackets are to take these two verses and say they belonged originally somewhere else. Then, of course, there's an argument about where do they originally belong? Um, we're not going to go there. I don't find it quite that interesting. Um, the other tradition is that this is actually part of a text that was suppressed. That is an early tradition, by the way, that this is part of the prophecy of Eldad and Medad, and that that prophecy is suppressed. What I find fascinating about the fact that that is an early commentary is that pretty early on, there is some notion that maybe the whole Torah wasn't given to Moses on Sinai. Right. If you already have a tradition that says this text doesn't belong here and or this text is from another text that was suppressed, that already suggests the Torah is not completely mosaic. And so I find that fascinating. So how can you know, how do you claim the Torah is mosaic and yet have a commentary that says this is actually the prophecy of Eldad and Medad that was suppressed? Okay. so just to let you know, that's what's going on here. So if someone says to you something about the inverted nuns, you can be like, yep. Our rabbi told us about that. We know about that. All right. So what is the text that is set off by these brackets? It is, um, This may sound very familiar to some of you. And if so, it's because it goes like this. Kuma Adonai veyafutsu oivecha veganusu misanecha mipanecha. And if you're going, why do I know that? Why does that sound familiar? That's because this is the verse we sing when we open the ark in services to take out the Torah. Why do we sing this verse when we open the ark? Because it says <laughs> when the ark set out, Moshe would say, Kuma, get up, rise up, Yudhe May your enemies be scattered and may your foes flee before you. And when it halted, Moshe would say, Return, Yudhe you who are Israel's myriads of thousands. So we don't do the second verse, we only do the first verse when we open the ark, meaning the ark is setting forward, setting out. Going forward, moving. Uh, and so then, you know, we have to think rabbinically, because this becomes a rabbinic, right, text. It's taken from Torah, but it becomes part of the rabbinic uh, tradition, part of the rabbinic service that is crafted for the synagogue. Uh, and so we have to say, why, why take this verse now, obviously, or I mean, what does it mean for us? Obviously, it's about the ark setting off, and the rabbis want to connect this moment of standing at the ark to the moments you know, in our past, that's beautiful, lovely. Okay. Um, what do we do with scatter your enemies, you know, before you, um, those who hate you, misanecha, right? Scatter your haters, those who hate you from before your face. Um, 
So, you know, I used to struggle a little bit with, okay, this is what I'm singing out loud as we open the ark. Um, and for me, I think it became, may those who, who would stand against what Torah is teaching in terms of our values and ethics and whatever, may they just kind of go down the block. <laughs> may they gather somewhere else, <laughs> right? That, um, and I'm not talking here about specific um, theology or specific, you know, tenets. It's more about the spirit of what we're trying to do, making the world a better pace, place, trying to be better people, trying to better our society. For folks who want to stand against that, for haters, let the haters gather down the street. Um, that's kind of how I made my peace with this text. Um, anyway, that is how we begin this week's triennial. And we move right into now um, another scene that is a doublet. Like we said, we're going to get, um, not right now, but in a second, we're going to get a doublet of another story. Okay, let's see what's going on here. Vaihi ha'am kemit onanim. What's going on? The Am, the nation, the people were kemit onanim, were like complainers. And it was ra, it was evil in the ears of Yudhevavhe. And God heard. And God's nostrils flared. You never want to be around when God's nostrils flare. This is not a good thing, people. All right. So um, God's nostrils flare, meaning it's a it's a euphemism for God got very angry um, and uh, bursts out against them in ish in fire, um, and the fire started eating the edges of the camp. Right. So it starts consuming stuff at the edges of the camp. So what do the people do? el Moshe. So the people cry out to Moshe, of course. Moshe el And so Moshe prays to God, um, and the fire died down. So we get complaining. It's evil in the ears of God when God hears it, and God lashes out with fire. Moshe prays, and the fire dies down at the edges of the camp. The place was called Tavera because a fire of Yutevavhe had broken out against them. Okay, so one of these, how the elephant got its trunk moments, an etiology about the place name Tavera, fine. Um, and then we go to verse 4, and here's where we get the doublet of another story. So we already have the people complaining. What are they complaining about in the story we just read? Anybody? Walking in yes. What are they complaining about? We don't know. It doesn't say. It just says they are complaining and it is evil in God's ears. So let's hang on to that. That's what we know from the first incident. Complaint. Mm-hmm. God finds it really um, objectionable and gets super angry. All right. Now what happens? Pay very close. For those of you who know Hebrew, I see you, Barry. For those of you who know Hebrew, I want you to pay attention to the Hebrew. What is Asaf Suf? It's uh, anamanapia in a way. Um, 
in terms of riffraff, right? Riffraff is, you know, onomatopoeia for, you know, like some, something not substantial, something, um, anyway, asaf suf comes from, um, the verb to gather. Asaf suf, so the asaf suf, the riffraff in English, asher bekirbo, that was in their midst, meaning in the midst of the people, hit avuta ava, literally in Hebrew, this, uh, this says, they lusted a lust. They craved a craving. Vayashuvu vayivku. And so the Israelites um, weep. And what do they say when they're weeping? Vayomru, miyochilenu basar. Who's going to give us meat to eat? Zacharnu et hadaga asher no chalba mitraim chinam. Uh-oh. They're really pushing it now. So we remember the fish that we used to eat for free, for free on that cruise. I mean, uh, in Egypt, right? So the for free. And we remember the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic and vata. But now. But now what? Our souls are dried up. There's nothing at all. Nothing but this man to look at. Uh-oh. Now we get an editorial note from the narrator. Vehaman, uh, but the man was like coriander seed and in color it was like bdellium just so we're clear it was people look just like bdellium so now you can hold a picture in your head of mana the people would go about and gather it grind it between millstones or pound it into a mortar boil it in a pot and make it into cakes it tasted like rich cream now the midrash says it tasted like whatever they wanted it to taste like so if you thought, mmm, chocolate cake is what I'd like for breakfast today, that's what the mana tasted like. Whatever you wanted it to taste like, that's what it tasted like. That's the midrash. And it's a very well-attested midrash. Like everyone assumes that that's the truth about mana. Everybody. Nobody argues with that midrash. <clears throat> okay. But, but biblically what we know is it tasted like rich cream. If you take a desert people and something tastes like rich cream, that's pretty tasty. Right. And it means it's a good source of carbohydrates, proteins and fats. Um, I've taught you one year about what we think mana actually was. Um, this stuff that comes resin that could not resin. Yeah. Uh, something that comes from a tree. So it's filled with carbohydrates it's like like sap. It drops from the tree with the dew in the morning, but it like melts in the afternoon sun. Um, possibly that's what's being referred to here. It looks kind of milky white, um, and it's very high in carbohydrates, very high in um, good kinds of things that you need to survive in a desert environment. Okay. All right. And when the dew fell on the camp at night, the mana would fall upon the dew. This is how that thing behaves with that tree in the in the wilderness that we actually know. Remember, wilderness is not desert. 
Wilderness is kind of that scrappy stuff um, that's different than desert. It gets more rain than desert, not as much rain as actual good, wonderful pasture land. So in that environment of a midbar, if you have a technical midbar wilderness environment, this is where the, you find these trees and this uh, behavior of this carbohydrate. It comes down with the dew. Okay, and then it melts by afternoon. All right, so that's the editorial note about mana, meaning I think it means the people have no really legitimate grounds to be complaining because they are provided with mana every day and it tastes like rich cream. I mean, come on, what else do you want? You're going to talk to me about free? Free? Freed? Mana is free. It falls from the sky every day. But you're talking about the leaks in Egypt, Chinam, that were free? Were they really free? Oh, sure, they were free as long as you gave over your entire labor all day, every day to Pharaoh. Then, sure, it's free. Okay. So, Vaishma Moshe et and Moshe hears the people, Boche, crying, right? Um, um, ish lefetach ohalo, every person at their tent. Vayichar God gets really mad. Me'od. Big time. Me'od means big. Big time. Uve'ene Moshe ra. And in the eyes of Moshe, this was evil. This was bad behavior. Vayomer Moshe el yodevavhe. And Moshe cries out to whom? To God. Does Moshe cry out to God to say, forgive these people? Save them. They don't mean it. Forgive them. They're, they're, they don't know what they're saying. They're dehydrated. Is that what Moshe says? No. Moshe goes to God and says, why have you given me this people? You said you loved me and you gave me Jews. <laughs> you said I found favor in your eyes and you gave me this people. <laughs> Why have you laid the burden of this people on me? Did I produce this people? Did I get pregnant? Did I miss something? Did I get pregnant and birth a people? Yalditi who did I birth this people that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries an infant to the land that you have promised on oath to their ancestors? Where am I supposed to get meat to feed these people when they whine to me and say, give us meat to eat? I cannot do this. I can't. I'm done. I cannot carry these people by myself. It is too much for me. Conveyed me many. It's too heavy for me. If you would deal with me like this, kill me. Just Kill me now, I beg you, and let me see no more of my horrible, horrible life. She is so funny. Oh, my God. Moshe is having a meltdown. Moshe has a complete and total meltdown, (laughs) right? So usually Moshe prays on behalf of the people when God gets angry because Moshe knows if he doesn't intervene, God is going to say, Get away from me, stand aside, and let me deal with those people. And this time, Moshe says, I have had it. I have 
had it with these people. I can't do it anymore. I thought you loved me. And did I give birth to these people? What is Moshe saying, essentially? Did I birth these people? No, you did. They're your fault. (laughs) Your son is driving me crazy. Your daughter makes me want to tear my hair up. (laughs) He Um, uh, He needs a referral, Rabbi. Yeah, I think totally Moshe needs a referral. Thanks, Rick. Um, yes, we recognize this moment, don't we? We In parenting, we've each had this moment. Everyone except for Robin Close. Every, every <laughs> one of us has had this moment of, I can't do it anymore. I can't deal with this kid anymore. I can't deal with the responsibility. I'm exhausted. They won't stop crying. They don't stop demanding. They keep, I'm being pecked to death by ducks. I can't do it. We've seen this. You know, not just in parenting, we see it at work when it's like, it's just too much. The responsibility is too much. I can't do it. I can't handle it. All right. So Moshe has a complete and total meltdown. Now, how does God respond? Right? God could say, suck it up, Moses. (laughs) Right? We had an arrangement. We had an agreement. You go take a break. I want you to go for the weekend to this little oasis over here and, you know, eat, eat some mana I'll give you extra mana and like hang out under the trees over there, take a break. And then when you come back, I want to see a different attitude, right? Is that what God says? No, that's not what God says. What does God say? God says to Moshe, go get 70 elders right? Elders of whom you have experience as elders and officers of the people, meaning people who have proven themselves to be responsible, resourceful, trustworthy, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their place there with you. I will come down and speak with you there and I will draw upon the spirit that is on you and put it on them. They shall share the burden of the people with you and you shall not bear it alone. And say to the people, okay, so that's number one. God gets it. Moshe needs a board of directors. Moshe cannot do it alone. Moshe needs lay leaders to help with the Jews because it's just too much. Not that I could relate to this. But so he needs help dealing with the Jews And so God says, great, let's get a council of 70 lay leaders to help you meet the needs of this people. So God seems to be saying, you know what? You're not wrong, (laughs) right? You're not wrong. And so that's to Moshe. What does God say to Moshe to say to the people? And say to the people, this is God talking still, purify yourselves for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have kept whining before Yodhei and saying, if only we had meat to eat. Indeed, we were better off in Egypt. Well, 
Yudhei Vavhei will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall eat it not only one day, not two, not even five or ten or twenty, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. For you have rejected Yudhei Vavhei who is among you by whining before God and saying, Oh, why did we ever leave Egypt? All right, so who's having a meltdown now? <laughs> right? God is melting down a little. Ooh. You want meat? I'll give you meat. I'll give you meat till it's coming out of your nose. I'll give you meat. <laughs> uh, and so that Moshe's now getting a little nervous, right? Like it's one thing. Okay, God said, okay, Moshe, I'm going to help you out. Okay, we're, we're good. But but Moshe hears what God is going to say through Moshe to the people. What's Moshe's first question? Wait, 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 wait. You're going to give them meat to eat for 20 days, for more than 20 days, for a month? Uh, there's no wealths around here. Have you noticed that, God? <laughs> like, what are you thinking? Could enough flocks and herds be slaughtered to suffice for them? Or could all the fish of the sea be gathered for them to suffice for them? And Yudhei answers Moshe, is there a limit to Yudhei power? You shall soon see whether I, what I have said happens to you or not. You think I need Ralphs? You think I need a supply chain? Do you forget who you're talking to right now? I love this. This is so good. So Moshe went and reported the words of Yodei to the people. Moses is like, okay, I think it's best that I leave now. And I'm going to go tell the people what you told me to tell them, right? God does not seem in the mood to uh, have much of a different kind of conversation. So Moshe goes and reports the words of Yodei to the people. He gathered 70 of the people's elders and stationed them around the tent. Then after coming down in a cloud and speaking to him, Yudhei drew upon the spirit that was upon Moshe and put it upon the 70 participating elders. And when the spirit rested upon them, they spoke in ecstasy, but did not continue. Two of the participants, one named Eldad and the other Medad, had remained in the camp. Yet the spirit rested upon them, meaning they were not two of the 70. But somehow, magically, this ruach, this spirit from Moshe, descends on Eldad and Medad in the camp, not over there where the 70 elders are with God and Moshe. They were among those recorded, but they had not gone out to the tent. And they spoke in ecstasy in the camp, meaning they're being witnessed by other people who are not with God and Moshe, but are in the camp, right? Here we go. An assistant. <laughs> you have to love that translation. Okay. An assistant ran out to Moses. I don't, I don't, where do they get these translations sometimes? An assistant ran out and told Moshe saying, Eldad and Medad are acting the prophet in the camp. Dun, 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 dun. Right. There's trouble. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Eldad and Medad are prophesying. And Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' attendant from his youth, spoke up and said, My Lord Moshe, restrain them. 
right? Stop the, stop them. They're challenging your authority. But Moshe said to him, are you wrought up on my account? Would that all of Yudhevavhe's people were prophets, that Yudhevavhe put the divine spirit upon them. Moshe then re-enters the camp together with the elders of Israel. Here we go with more ruach, more wind. Now it's wind. There it was spirit. This is, if you know the Hebrew, there's a lot going on here with gathering, asaf, asaf suf, ruach. There's a lot going on here with these words. A wind from Yudhevavhe started up swept quail from the sea and strewed them over the camp about his day's journey on this side and a day's journey on that side. That's a lot of birds, people. All around the camp and some two cubits deep on the ground. The people set to gathering quail all that day and night and all the next day, even the one who gathered least had 10 omers and they spread them out all around the camp. The meat was still between their teeth, not yet chewed, when the anger of Yudhei blazed forth against the people. And Yudhei struck the people with a very severe plague. And the place is named Kivrut Hata'ava because the people who had the craving were buried there. Then the people set out from Kivrut Hata'ava for Hatserot. Um, and then we're going to get a story about when they were in Hatserot. Okay. That's our text for today. And if anyone thinks Torah does not have a sense of humor, they have not read this text. I'm sorry. I cannot believe that this wasn't on some level tongue-in-cheek, right? Like on some level, God's exasperation, Moshe's exasperation, and on one on the one hand, it's sad. It's like everybody's coming apart. Everybody's coming unglued. All the relationships are stressing everybody to the max. So I want, I want to take that seriously. It's a serious moment. On the other hand, I have to feel like the people who wrote this are people who have been standing in the same place that we have when we just are losing our minds, right? And even the character God has lost it here, right? So, all right. So let's begin to unpack this text. So cravings, this is what we're dealing with. So, um, so there's lots of questions, right? There's lots of questions here. One is, what the heck do they mean when they say we ate it for free in Egypt? Chinam. What the heck? Rashi is like, yo, if you say that they meant the Egyptians gave them fish for nothing without payment, then I ask, but does it not state in the book of Exodus, go therefore now and work for there shall be no straw given to you. Remember when they were making bricks. Now, if they did not give them straw for nothing, would they have given them fish for nothing? What then is this force of the word chinam? Rashi answers. It means free from without being burdened with heavily, uh, heavenly commandments. All right, so what's Rashi saying? It doesn't mean free about money. That would be silly. They didn't even give them straw to make bricks with for free, right? They withheld straw. Why would they give them fish? It's not about money. It's not about free. It's that the people were free from the commandments of Sinai. So what's Rashi suggesting the people are actually complaining about then? And y'all can unmute as you want. What is Rashi saying the people are complaining about? The food? 
Is this really about the food? No. For yeah. Russia? Uh-huh. Go ahead. They're complaining about the strings that are tied to the food, that they have ah. to God's people. They're, they're complaining about the strings attached to the mana. <laughs> right? The mana's free too. Right? So Rashi's saying they're not paying for the mana. They didn't pay for the fish in Egypt, but they're not paying for the mana either. Why are they using the word free about the food in Egypt and not about the mana? Because the mana isn't free. To, I think that was Andy Vogel who was speaking. To Andy's point, there's strings attached to being fed in the desert. And those strings are 613 in number. Right? They have obligations now. And that's what they're actually um, rebelling against is the sense that they now have obligations. Okay. So the Eitz Chaim said, why did the people complain about the manna when the Torah makes a point of telling us how delicious it was? So the Eitz Chaim answers, to feel prosperous, it's not enough for a person to have everything that they need. One must have more than what one's neighbors have. The mana was psychologically unsatisfying because everyone had it in abundance. So this is a psychological insight that we, our happiness is comparative. And we know this is true from y'all who are the experts can say more about it, but we know this is true from, from brain science is that happiness is comparative. If I have more than you do, I perceive myself as having a lot. And it doesn't matter what that amount is, right? As long as it's more than you have. So we look at our neighbors to position ourselves among our neighbors and say, how am I doing? And it doesn't matter how big our house is. It really doesn't in terms of people feeling like they have a lot. It's about having more. My house is bigger than my neighbor's house, right? So some of us in two-bedroom townhomes here in the Palisades, right? have to fight against that all the time, right? And have to say, I'm not going to determine my sense of abundance and what I have based on what people around me have. If I did that, I couldn't live here. And that's exactly what the Eitzchayim is suggesting is going on, is that they all have the same. And that's that has them feeling like they don't have a lot. Okay. Um, this is also from the Eitz Chaim version of the uh, Torah, the commentary. This shows the greatness of Moses as a leader. In one interpretation, the people wept and complained in the privacy of their homes. Remember when it said at the openings of their tents? Yet Moses sensed their unhappiness and understood its cause. Maimonides claims that the phrase, the God got very angry, occurs only as a divine response to instances of idolatry. This grumbling is perceived not as a comment about the food, but as a rebellion against God's providence. This is a very popular interpretation of why God gets so mad. Because if we look at this as a doublet, if we look at this as um, another version of the story that we have somewhere else in Torah, God does not get mad in the other place in Torah. God just brings quail. God goes on this absolute tirade here, then gives them quail, and then before they're even done chewing it, kills them with a plague. 
with the quail in their mouth. All right, that is a very different story from they say they want meat, God brings them quail and they eat meat. So the commentators have to ask, why is God so upset? Why did God feed them last time? And here, God is incredibly angry with them. Most commentators who have to defend God come up with some version of the answer that this is not about the food and God knows it. This is an opportunity to challenge God. They're complaining about mana, but really it's, they are testing. You know, they are, they're complaining as a way to test God, as a way to push against God. It's not because they have a legitimate complaint. That's some version of that is what most traditional commentators come up with because they have to defend God getting angry. Well, then you have to have an ulterior motive on behalf of the people. It can't just because they want meat because God gave them meat before. It's kind of, it's an anti-Dayenu. <laughs> Say more. Well, it's just, it's not enough. I mean, no matter what you do, it's not enough. We want more. And, and the other thing about the, the comparative, I mean, if everyone gets an A in class, the A is valueless. That seems to be one of the insights of our commentators is, well, they're feeling like a normal human would feel. If we all get the same, meh, does it really matter to me? Right? It only really matters to me when I get more than you do. Okay. Um, all right. So that's a little bit about why is God so mad? Um, okay. Let's go on and look at some other stuff that's groovy. All right. So Al, Rabbi Alex Israel of Pardes is going to answer the question, why did God not get mad there and God got mad here when it's the same exact thing? We want meat. And he answers... I think that it is precisely because we are now a year later that the second incident is seen as so serious. A year earlier, the Israelites were a slave nation, fresh out of Egypt. They were used to being fed by their masters. They found it difficult to fend for themselves. Their plea for food was justified. But now a year later, after the revelation of Sinai, after the miracles, after the Mishkan, the people are very different. They have matured and grown. They now have national leaders and systems of government, princes of tribes, judges, and other systems. They have formed themselves into a nation with a religious spiritual ideology. They should have more patience. They should have a more sophisticated way of coping with a problem of this sort. Furthermore, the cries for food in Exodus were justified. A month out of Egypt, their food provisions fully spent. The people simply had no food. Now, they have a bunch of animals, so I don't know what he means, because they, they have a bunch of animals they could kill. Okay. They were fully justified in their complaint, but here, a year later, they do have food. They have manna. The verses deliberately stress this, right? Do the Israelites have a right to complain so bitterly, to weep and cry for meat? Are these the correct priorities? Is there truly no food, or is there a different problem? Could it be that the problem is not the manna, but rather where, when they say our souls are dried out, as the verse indicates. Is this, the, is this a problem in their stomachs or in their souls, right? So I think this is absolutely part of what's going on here is God, Moses, everybody understands that this is not about the food. I'll never forget, I had a congregant who 
came to talk to me and he was just beside himself and he was so angry, so angry and starts yelling at me about the vacuum cleaner that's outside the social hall. And he's trying to put together his presentation. There's this vacuum cleaner like, and like he yelled and yelled and yelled and yelled. And I knew this man well. And so I like when he finally stopped, <laughs> right, right, right. I was like, um, Ben, <laughs> respectfully, I don't think this is about the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> right? Do you want to talk about what's really going on here? Um, right? This is not about the vacuum cleaner. And so, right, most folks understand, God understands, Moshe understands. They're not angry at what the people are saying. They're angry because they know this is not about the food. They have plenty of food that tastes amazing. They have haagen every day. <laughs> they know it's something else. And it's the something else that they're reacting to. And Rabbi Alex Israel is suggesting, right, that God and Moshe get it, that this is not about the people's bellies not being full. It's about their souls. There's a problem. They, they name it. Nafshenu, ourselves are shriveled up. That's the real issue. That's the real problem. Aviva Zornberg is going to point to the use of this word ruach, spirit, all over the place. Why? How do we begin Genesis? What's the situation in the very beginning of Genesis before light is created? Do you remember? Tohu vavohu is the situation. Veruach Elohim merachefet al pnei hamayim. The ruach of God, the ruach that is God, was hovering over the face of the deep. That's the situation before creation. Ruach is there. Spirit of God is there. All right. So ruach is not is not without meaning, right? And so Zornberg points to the fact that, that Ruach is being used all over the place in this story is about the tension between meat, flesh, and Ruach, spirit. That's the real tension. That's what's happening here. That's what's getting blown up for everybody is the tension between flesh and spirit. And the people are focused on flesh when they need to be focused on or trusting of spirit. The mana falls every single day. What is their problem, right? They're, the problem is one of trust. The problem is one, um, and Zornberg and others, if you recall, if you go back in your brains to when we were talking about suckling in the desert, Mark Fish, Rick Siegel, we we talked about the fury of the infant at the mother for removing the breast. And so some folks want to go to, that's the tension here, right? Is it there's, they get mana, but they're not in control of it. It falls, then it's gone, right? The breast is here, we're happy and sated, and then it's gone. They have no control. And they feel this rage at the source of nourishment that also gets taken away and that they don't have control over it. And so they have this mixed, you know, feeling, this mixed experience, and that's what they're expressing here. Okay. This is Aviva Zornberg quoting Ha'emek Davar, a traditional source. 
Emek Davar reads the people's outbreak of desire, yeah. this yeah. lusting a lust, right? Aviva Zornberg's always focused on desire. That's the language in Torah here, that they desire a desire, right? They desired and resented their desire. For instance, they complain about the mana that falls every day precisely because they receive only one day's ration at a time which forces them into a position of continual desire. Ramban already expresses this idea, Nachmanides. And this is, she's quoting Nachmanides now. They said, even the mana that we live on is not truly in our hands, so that we may have the pleasure of seeing it available to us. Instead, we yearn for it and lift up our eyes to God to pray for it, that it may appear again today. Talk to Judy Griffith about what the pantry in my garage looks like what our freezer looks like downstairs in the garage. They're both full overflowing. Why? I get, whoever's got the dog, could you mute please? Whoever has barking dogs, if you could mute. I'm trying to mute it. I'm trying to find out how to mute it. Maybe I can mute you. Yes, okay. So that my freezer downstairs and my pantry in the garage are overflowing and they're big. (laughs) Why are they overflowing? There's a Ralph's right down the street. Yeah. Like, why do I need all of that food? It's, am I afraid of tornadoes coming? No, it's because there's a sense of security. If I have all of that food and I can see it, then I'm safe. And I'm secure. Zornberg is saying the people are forced into a constant sense of desire and they can't see the mana for tomorrow. They have to look up to the heavens and say, please let it fall again tomorrow. And that fills them with rage. This, this constant needing to, this constant sense of dependency, um, fills them with rage. The mana and not just rage. It's that their constant state of desire is frustrating for them. Think about if you feel constantly in desire and don't get that desire met, except, you know, once a day, it becomes really frustrating to constantly be in a state of desire is what she's suggesting. The mana becomes an object of desire and a reminder of their vulnerability. They resent their dependency, the posture of prayer and sense of not to have, which as the poet Wallace Stevens has it, is the beginning of desire, right? Not to have is the beginning of desire. If you have it, there's there's no desire. You're sated. But Ha'emek Davar adds, they are also embarrassed by their own repudiation of desire. For that reason, they adopt a cover story of lust for meat as though constant sensual gratification will secure them against the agitation of yearning. I think this is really, really insightful. And I think it is what our our culture understands really well. Entice them with a new model and do a really sexy commercial about it. 
and put it in front of them and show it to them and show it to them again and show them how happy and slim and wealthy and white they'll be if they just buy this car. (laughs) Fuel desire constantly. And then we wonder why we're frustrated. We wonder why we're not happy. We wonder why we don't think it's enough. It's because it's designed. The whole thing is designed for us to stay in a state of desire. And then we get frustrated with our own desire. Right? Okay. And we're yearning for the wrong things. We're not yearning for connection, love, right? Learning. We're yearning for the newest coach bag. We're yearning for the newest $400 pair of shoes. And that that's part of the equation because that can never be satisfied really. And so we live in this constant state of yearning, this constant state of agitation. All right, I don't have a clock. What time are we at? I sense we're at time. 10 of 11. 11. Okay. Um, So I want to stop there. I I have more on the sheet, um, but I want to stop there and just kind of see how we're doing, where we're at what anybody oh wait one more thing i want to tell you so i'm sitting it's a, and this is the god's honest truth the god's honest truth i'm sitting after graduation catered meal for graduation lots of leftovers then i have uh we bring in the family meal from vittorio's friday night for shabbat dinner lots of leftovers we have a fridge filled with leftovers like really yummy leftovers cake pie just amazing stuff right so I'm sitting with my altos, with the other two altos, and because they were staying at my house for the graduation. So they're sitting, we're sitting there, and we had been out and about, and they'd never been to In-N-Out Burger. So I took them to In-N-Out Burger because we went to UCLA to see UCLA, um, and we ate at In-N-Out. We come home, and we're sitting there, and I swear to God, Paula says, oh, my God. There is so much food in that fridge and it's so yummy. I wish I were hungry because I want to eat that food. Okay. And I said, swear on my life. I had not looked at the Torah portion. I had not looked at anything. And I said, you know, Torah has a teaching about this. And she said, what are you talking about? Like, and I said, craving a craving. I said, you're not hungry. You don't have an appetite, but you have an appetite to have an appetite. You're craving having a craving so that you can fill that craving by eating the food in the fridge. But you're not hungry. You're craving a craving. And Torah says this is why God gets so angry at the people. I can't find it anywhere. It made me crazy. I asked my Hebrew partner. I'm going to have to put it out on the listserv. Who can find that teaching for me? That's what the, that's what God is so angry about. Say, says somebody, and I can't find it, but that it, that they are create, they're lusting a lust. It's not a lust for anything. They're, they're, they, they want to want, meaning they can't, they're sated. They're satisfied and they're unhappy being satisfied because then there's no craving they can fill. Just like Paula looking at the fridge and going, I wish I were hungry because I'd really like to eat. I'd really like to want to eat that food, <laughs> right? So, um, yeah, so that happened this weekend. I wanted to give you that teaching because it's one of my favorites because I think this is where we get stuck a lot. We can't rest in being sated. 
We can't just go, wow, isn't it cool that I have enough? We, we can't. We just, there's something about us that like, it's like, we want to want. I, I want to go shopping, but I don't need anything. But I want to want to go, like, I want to want to go to get that thing that I need, but I don't need anything. <laughs> right? So rather than just go, oh, I guess that means I could nap or, you know, walk around the block or, I don't know, read. No, it's like I got to find something that I need, that I, <laughs> right? Because we want to want and then go fulfill that want. And I think that's what makes God crazy here is y'all are not missing meat. Y'all are fine. Y'all want to miss something so you can go, right? You know, that's what you can't, you can't just say, thank you, God. Thanks. Right. I was cooking pot roast last night, right? Eliana comes in. Ooh, something smells good. What is that? I said, pot roast with potatoes and carrots. Well, ah, I don't want that. Then don't eat it. But rather than, thanks, mom, you know, like, no, no, thank you for what you're making and all that you're going through. It's, ugh, I don't want that. That's where God is right now, right? You know, no, thank you for the mana. No, we're, we're fine. We're good. You know, we'll make it work. <laughs> it's, they want to want something else, something that they don't have. Okay. I'll leave it for your comments now. Margo, speak. As you're talking, and I kind of understand what's what's going on, but I couldn't help but think of what I know that I don't know. I don't know that the Torah. I don't really know a lot about uh, Torah, and I'm learning a lot from all of these. Uh, discussions and everything, but what I can stop thinking of what happens with guilt of having too much. Um, and it just kind of came up because we're talking about the wanting of the food and having too much and all that, but I couldn't stop thinking about guilt. So and you mean whether- feeling feeling badly that we have so much when others have so little? Yes, exactly. So, so yes, that is a thing. That is absolutely a thing. Um, it's not, it's not what's being discussed here, I don't think. Um, but I think for sure there's a thing where we can't even feel good about what we have because we're so busy saying, but other people have so little. Um, how can I have so much? And so Judaism, I think, tries to address that by saying, as long as you're giving, to make sure that other people are eating, that's enough. You're allowed and encouraged to enjoy your food and to enjoy what you have. Make sure you are giving at your capacity to those who have less and then leave it. Leave it. You feeling badly doesn't do anything for anybody. It's not productive in any way. Your feeling badly that other people don't have should move you to give to the West Side Food Bank at a level that is appropriate to your income. And if you're doing that, you need to deal with, you know, one of these guys, Ed Dreyfus or George or one of these guys. You got to go see one of these people and like deal with your stuff. Once you've written a check, you have to write the check. But once you've done that, 
you need to go work it out, right? Because it doesn't help anybody. It's coming from somewhere else, and mm-hmm. and we need to get over it. Uh, it. Well, that's my that's my interpretation. Got it, <laughs> Susan. Very early in the session, it, it reminded me of like I went on long business trips, and you know, after two days of eating out, a restaurant meal no longer appeals. So I always, you know, got someplace I could just get yogurt and green apples. But the mana is so rich, it would be like having to eat at a restaurant for breakfast, lunch, and dinner day after day after day. And the richness um, becomes nauseating. But remember, I mean, yes, but remember, they're asking for what's even richer, which is meat. Well, I thought they were asking for leeks and uh, for some vegetables in there, too. Well, they said that's one of they then they go on a tangent, remembering all the great things in the buffet in Egypt. But they say, who will feed us basar meat? Okay. so it's not so right. So so it's even worse. Giving your example makes it even worse. They're eating, you know, in and out burgers three times a day. And you might say, well, people get tired of that kind of rich food. So they're eating in and out burgers three times a day and they're asking for banana cream pie. Right. Instead of having Rocky Mountain trout when you're in Colorado Springs, they're asking for the T-bone steak. <laughs> yes. They're asking for delicacies when they're, you know, so, okay. You get the point. Jody. Didn't they already have animals with them and they're fetching, of course, and craving meat? I didn't understand. They had animals. So it was truly about a hole in their soul. So it wasn't about the meat. So there's a discussion about that uh, in the commentaries. Some commentators say they weren't allowed to kill those animals and eat them. They, those animals were meant to go into the land of Israel and be their flocks and herds in Israel. So they're not allowed to eat them. The only meat they were allowed to eat was what? How many times have we talked about this? What was the only meat they were allowed to eat? Sacrificial meat. Uh, oh, yeah. So, um, but, but then you, one could wonder, well, if they're allowed to eat sacrificial meat and they bring a sacrifice sometimes and eat with the priests of that, why are they complaining about having meat? They're, they're getting access to meat. But remember, it wouldn't have been very often, right, in the sacrificial system. But, um, but yeah, so that, so, so there is a discussion of that. You know, there's like, wait, they have, they have animals, but clearly they're not allowed to just kill them and eat them. Or God would have said, kill the animals. <laughs> you want meat? It's right next to you. <laughs> you just fed it this morning. Mark? You know, I, I think that uh, something there's something uh, that uh, could usefully be added to this, and that's the concept of envy. Um, you know, some while ago when you were talking about the, bio, the uh, psychobiography of Israel, uh, uh, Melanie Klein uh, and her notions about early development uh, became uh, uh, something that was relevant. One of Klein's notions has to do with a very early infantile state of envy of the breast, of uh, a hatred and a wish to destroy that which is good and gives and provides. And uh, I think that 
that is uh, relevant here as one one issue. But there's also a developmental progression from envy uh, to uh, a more object-oriented uh, state uh, that has to do, uh, or, or it's not more object-oriented, it's a different kind of object orientation. But there are also issues that go beyond greed uh, to um, uh, issues of jealousy, uh, of wanting to uh, wanting to be uh, being satisfied if one has more than one's neighbors, not just uh, uh, greed, uh, not just envy at the provision of the good, but also to go beyond that uh, in a, a much more mature developmental state uh, and to feel a sense of depression, a sense that one's uh, envy and one's greed has harmed the object and that one then feels uh, depressed and remorseful over harming the object and wants to make restitution. So, so all, I think all of that is here. 100% yeah. all of that is here. Zornberg yeah. even quotes Melanie Klein. Right. Um, I mean, absolutely, that's what's going on here. And, you know, the, the question for me sometimes is what kind of a parent is God? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like everyone sees, sees a toddler melting down and knows, okay, this is not pleasant, <laughs> you know, but, mm-hmm. but you don't spank the kid, right. right? And you don't yell at the kid. I mean, if you're a decent parent, you know, you're like, ugh, get me out of here. But it's, right. do, do you know what I mean? And so, um, yes, I think all of that's going on here. And I'm interested a little bit in God losing God's, temper, right. you know, God loses control here um, in a pretty right. significant way that uh, that i find fascinating right um all right robin did you have your hand up we're at time okay um so uh lots here you can look at the rest of the source sheet if you'd like it will be posted um with the podcast you can also go on safaria um where it is where it lives um and it's under my name you just search my name and you will find all of my sheets This is the most recent. All right. So um, thank you, as always, for your amazing time and attention. I want to let you know that July we're going to not have Torah study because Rabbi Cher just had a baby. Uh, Well, Jen had the baby, but um, uh, Rabbi Cher now has a baby, and and so he's on paternity leave. uh, And so if you all want to organize someone teaching, lay teaching, that's groovy and very fun. Um, But I'm going to be at Hartman in Jerusalem. Uh, and so I won't be leading Torah study. Um, what I'd like to do is have a bagel brunch to welcome everyone back. So um, sometime in August to have a Friday morning bagels uh, and coffee and stuff here at nine o'clock and then Torah study at 10 o'clock. So stay tuned for a date uh, for that. But I would like to kick off officially our uh, next year of learning, um, you know, meaning after the summer hiatus, I'd like to kick that off in person. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.